You're to the... fucking great at this. I Do you want to be the host? <laughs> no, I don't know anything about information literacy. Welcome to Brain Daddy, the podcast where we talk about famous hoaxes and misinformation, both past and present, and how information literacy skills can help us identify and debunk those hoaxes in our everyday lives. I'm Caitlin Taylor, a writer and literary magazine editor living in Alabama. And I'm Vio, a library associate and information specialist living in Minnesota. You know... You say that you don't know anything about information literacy, but I'm here to tell you that whether or not you're familiar with the phrase, you do use it in one capacity or the other. We're bombarded with information all the time, Mm -hmm. and we use the resources we have at our disposal to find, evaluate, organize, use, and communicate information in all its various formats, most notably in situations requiring decision-making, problem-solving, or the acquisition of knowledge. And especially nowadays where we're using social media all the time and we're embroiled in this like super contentious election where fake news is be like the term is being batted around, but there's no real definition for that term. And we're in an age where like new technologies keep coming out super rapidly and the law, and this has always been the case as far as like law and technology goes, the law can't catch up because our, our laws are so... They just take such a long time to form, but also we, we can't see like the negative patterns of new technology, the ramifications of this new technology until years in the future after it's been created and utilized. Yeah. Oh God, we're recording this in 2020 in the middle of an election cycle and nothing makes an information professional want to go into hiding more than what's going on in the world today. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But speaking of the election, I'm thinking of that TED Talk by Zainab Tufekci in which she talks about data algorithms Mm -hmm. and social Mm -hmm. engineering. I believe I sent this one to you, Caitlin. Yeah. It's called We're Building a Dystopia Just to Get People to Click on Ads. In it, she talks about how social media and technology were used to influence the election. And our behavior. Yeah, and our, our behavior. It's frightening. Yeah. So some of the things that she describes are seemingly innocuous, like YouTube recommendations. You know, once you've watched a video about makeup, you'll start getting makeup recommended. Once you've watched a video about, I don't know, car detailing like I did, you'll start getting more and more car detailing videos recommended. Um, And YouTube and Google and Facebook, they all do this. It's called a filter bubble. And that's a term coined by Eli Pariser that refers to a state of intellectual isolation. So basically, the algorithm determines what your interests and what your beliefs are based on your prior searches and will start showing you more and more information that already confirms what you believe. Yeah. So Zainab Tufekci explains in her talk that Trump's social media manager disclosed that they were using Facebook dark posts. To basically demobilize people and get them not to vote. They would specifically target, say, for example, black men in key cities like Philly. So they basically committed voter suppression. And Facebook themselves never revealed what they mean by those dark posts, what they are. Um, Yeah, they kind of (laughs) suck. 
So in 2010, during the midterm elections, they experimented on 61 million U.S. users. And some people were shown one type of Facebook thumbnail that just stated, today is election day. Others were shown that same thumbnail, but underneath was a list of their friends who had clicked on the I voted button. And it shows you, it shows you their profile pictures. Yeah, so one version, yeah, one version of the ad has all your friends' faces and like a number count, I think, of how many of your friends have already voted. And then the other is the exact same ad, except it's, it's not, there's no, I guess, digital peer pressure. (laughs) Basically, that was the only change. And the people that saw the list of friends who had already voted were more likely to vote. Yes. And according to Zainab, that change turned out an additional 340,000 voters in that election. And it wasn't a fluke. Right. Because they repeated this in 2012. And the numbers were also very dramatic. Close to 300,000. I believe it was 270,000. And for reference, the 2016 U.S. presidential election was decided by about 100,000 votes. (laughs) Yeah, you have, you have a, uh, a cross stitch, um, that says punk ass book jockey, which somebody, some great friend got you, um, for your birthday one year. Dear listener, Please use your information literacy skills to identify who could have possibly gotten me that gift. <laughs> I don't know. It's impossible. But hopefully we can teach you the skills um, so that you can do that groundbreaking detective work. <laughs> yes. yes. So I'm a punk ass book jockey, and that really means I work in a library. And this is a lot to get into, but... We live in a capitalist society, and we participate in an information economy. As with other hierarchies that capitalism reinforces, information is one of them, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we can get into our, our public school education, but, but yes, I am equipped, if you ask me a question, to identify uh, valuable, identify, you know, factual resources. But even I am complicit in the system, you know, that prioritize certain information over others. And how do we look at information? For example, you know, were you to ask me a question, say... Which I've never done. (laughs) No, (laughs) you've never done. And I I, I do feel a little slighted by that. We've been (laughs) friends. We've been friends for... Over 10, 10 years. years. 10 years, and I've never once asked you a question about anything. No, no, and um, what a great disappointment. <laughs> I, I, it's like I'm sliding your, your trade yeah. as an information specialist. Yeah, I don't feel respected in this relationship <laughs> at all. But I am armed with the skills, and I am armed with the resources through my work, for, through my job, to find articles that are peer-reviewed, in subscription journals, in, you know, what we consider, quote unquote, high quality sources, right? You do the crap test, you look for, you know, (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, do you know what the crap test is? No, but I would just like to point out that crap is also, what are they called? Acronyms? I should know this. I'm a publisher. (laughs) It is an acronym. It's an acronym. In design and in book design, uh, in visual design, CRAP is also an acronym. Do you remember what it's for? Um, It basically exists. uh, Contrast, repetition, alignment, proximity. 
Yes, contrast, repetition, alignment, proximity. It exists actually to create informational hierarchy in in design. So if you're if like so say you're making a menu, you you know how to create the document of a menu and you know what information should be larger, what information should be smaller based on crap. So contrast, repetition, alignment, and proximity. And you can design your menu in a way that makes it readable. I mean, we've all looked at so many menus in in our lifetime. So the contrast can be the contrast in size. So the actual name of the dish will be larger than the price and it will be larger than the explanation of the dish. And so when you just look at a menu, you can see the contrast between the name of the dish and the explanation of what the dish is. And so even without reading, you can see just by looking how many dishes there are. So yeah, anyway, I, no. I just I just wanted to express that there was like a similar thing in document design. But in a way, what you're doing is you're manipulating your audience visually. Yes. When they look at it, the idea is that the reader, by looking at the form and looking at the design, can identify what's the important information. They can identify the pieces of information at a glance, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, in, in academic disciplines, CRAAP, C-R-A-A-P, stands for currency, relevance, authority, accuracy, and purpose. And mm-hmm. so that is a way for us to, you know, check for reliable sources. You look at how current it is. You look at, is it relevant to your information need? You look at who wrote it and what, what is its purpose? When you start having words for things, you start thinking about them more objectively, more, um, I think intentionally is the word that I'm looking for. Whereas, you know, if you're someone who doesn't know what the crap test is and you look at a graphic post on Facebook, you know, (laughs) I don't think that you approach that, that piece of information as intentionally as you would. I have like just a a question for you. So role reversal here. Have you ever believed in something that you saw, heard, or read that was not true? Never. You've never believed anything. I am a perfect uh, information literacy machine, and I have never once in my life been duped. Never. I bow to you. Okay. Okay. That's not, that's not entirely true. Um, <laughs> yes, I've believed plenty, plenty of things. I mean, I grew up in the internet age. And so um, I'm going to talk about something. It's an internet phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually know a whole lot about it because I'm not a person who like goes on the internet and reads these things um, to entertain themselves as some people do. And I've, I've never really felt a part of like internet culture. I know that I probably am, but, um, so have you ever heard of the Russian sleep experiment? Yes, I have. Okay. Uh, did you ever believe that the Russian sleep experiment was true? Caitlin. (laughs) I'm setting you up. I'm so sorry. You're, you're, first of all, first of all, can I just say that I do want to have a job after this. But yeah. yes, I, I fully believed maybe until you mentioned to me that you were going to talk about this. 
I believe that the Russian experiment was a true thing. So talk to me about this. I need to know more. I purposefully did not look it up or do any research about it after you told me this is what you're going to talk about. So talk to me. <laughs> okay. So there's not much research to do on it, honestly. So the Russian sleep experiment is a story that popped up online many, many years ago. I should probably know how many. I have the Snopes tab open. Uh, the Snopes article about the Russian sleep experiment was published in 2013. So this has been, you know, around, um, bopping around the internet for a very long time. And I, I first read it in college. So that would have been any time between 2010 and 2014. So it's, it's been around for at least, I can't count, it's at 2020. Least <laughs> at least 10 years, but probably longer. Basically, the story is about a group of Russian researchers in the 1940s who were conducting this experiment with a group of political prisoners. And the prisoners were promised that if they complied with the experiment, they would be released. And so the experiment was that the researchers wanted to keep five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-like stimulant. And so the people were kept in a sealed environment. Their oxygen was carefully monitored so that the gas wouldn't kill them because in high quantities it was toxic. Then they were given enough food for all of them for the full 13 days and there were little windows there. They had cots, but they didn't have any bedding. They had, you know, a running toilet uh, or running water and a toilet, basically everything you need to survive. And this gas was like leaked into, you know, the oxygen of the room. And for the first few days, they were fine. They started, you know, exhibiting normal symptoms of sleep deprivation. But then things get fucking terrifying. Um, am I allowed to say fucking? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, uh, yeah, so they had normal conversations and activities, but then after five days, they started to complain. They started to do and say strange things. They started whispering into the microphone. So the, the researchers never spoke back to them. So it was almost like they were like in this room by themselves and there was nobody on the other side. So they started whispering into the microphones. After three more days, there was just complete silence. And it seemed impossible. They could tell by the oxygen levels that everyone inside was still alive because it was consistent with like, you know, how many people would be using how much oxygen, but there was complete and utter silence. And so they went to check the microphones to see if they were still working and, and they were still operational. And when they walked inside, basically they said, we're opening the chamber to test the microphones, step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. And they heard this response from one of the people inside, we no longer want to be freed, which is terrifying. <laughs> and so when they went inside, they basically saw horrors. I don't want to recount all of it because it's really, it's a really terrifying read. But it, it is graphic. Yes. It's very graphic. There's some, there's some auto cannibalism. And utterly compelling. Utterly compelling. It's very well written. But, you know, just their organs on the outside of their bodies, all of these horrifying things. And then 
they go on uh, to do, I don't think they don't reach the full 15 days in the story. I think they only reach 14 days, but then surgeons try to try to actually like fix them because they basically they've ripped open their intestines. They've, they've gnawed their, you know, they've ripped off their skin down to the bone and it seems to be that anytime the surgeons put one of them to sleep, they immediately die. So they beg to not have to go back to sleep. And so the surgeons do surgery on them while they're awake with no anesthetic. And many of the, of the patients, you know, while they're being cut open with no anesthetic are just like grinning. One of the patients can't speak, but he clearly wants something. And so the, the surgeon gives him like a pad of paper and a pen and he writes, keep cutting after the surgery is over. And so it's, you know, it's really terrifying. The patients exhibit superhuman strength. Some of them who were put on anesthetic, it it takes like twice the amount of anesthetic. And it, it just, it just gets worse from there. Eventually they all are either die from going to sleep or they're shot by the researchers. And at the end, <laughs> the end, uh, one of the only researchers who is left alive, he's sealed in the chamber with one of the people that's being experimented on one of the political prisoners and he's holding a gun to his head and he says, what are you? I must know. And the subject says, have you forgotten so easily? We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven that we cannot tread. So when I first... I know. But when I first read this, I was what? I was like 18, 19. And it didn't, it didn't click in my mind that that was um, a little too eloquent for mm. someone in those circumstances to, to, <laughs> to say at the, yeah. at the end, right before they die, when they've been awake for 14 hours and they're some kind of superhuman auto cannibal monster. But this story kept me up for weeks. Like, kept you up for weeks? <laughs> yes, and I became an auto cannibal monster. <laughs> I mean, I would sleep, but it, it would keep me up at night um, every so often um, for a few weeks until I started Googling mm. about it. Because I was like, this, this, I mean, I believed that it was true. And so I wanted to find more out about it. So I started Googling. I don't know if the Snopes article actually existed by the time I was. I was trying to learn more about it and it definitely wasn't the Snopes article that made me know that, that, that it wasn't true. I just Googled uh, after, after, you know, trying to find out about, you know, what happened to these people. Um, I couldn't find any information. So I Googled how long can you go without sleep? How many days can it, can the human body survive without sleep? And it's kind of inconclusive. Um, I think the accepted scholarship is like around 10 or 11 days. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty uncommon to die from sleep deprivation. But as I was finding more out about what happens to you with sleep deprivation, it just seemed really inconsistent. But then, you know, there's the whole like scientific gas, like maybe that overrode things. But as I kept Googling and Googling and trying to find out more about the Russian sleep experiment, I came across 
a term I had never heard before. And the term is creepypasta. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So um, tell you? that term told me that there's this internet phenomenon called creepypasta, which are basically horror stories, um, urban legends that are invented just, just by writers on the internet. And I guess they're, what separates them from just complete fiction is that when they're first presented on the internet or whatever, they're, pre- they're kind of presented as the truth as being like this horrible, like historical thing that has happened that has been covered up. And so no one knows about it. Kind of similar to, I guess, you know, when early fictional travel narratives started to be published, I think in like the Victorian area, people started writing fiction like they were like travel narratives. So kind of like uh, Dracula. I think when Dracula was first published, people thought it was real because of the way it was written. But but Dracula was also based on an actually real phenomenon that occurred in the United States, <laughs> which is a whole nother thing. So, I mean, I, I'm like, I don't actually think I know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. This is actually a dollop episode um, um. called The American Vampire. And when people were dying of consumption, a lot of people, this was like lasted into the late 1800s, way too close for comfort. But mm-hmm. they believed that uh, vampires were causing death and like mm-hmm. not the life force of, of their loved ones. And uh, Bram Stoker visited America and spent time with uh, somebody, somebody, a, a, an American <laughs> author mm-hmm. um, and learned about this phenomenon <laughs> and went on to write Dracula. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I never knew this. This well, is great information. So the way that I understand creepypastas work is, you know, they're written in this setting where when you read it in its original state, right, I think there's like a website called Creepypasta. If you read it on creepypasta.com, mm-hmm. you know that your reading is fiction. But what mm. tends to happen is this nature of creepypastas, it's kind of, it, it, it goes around, it's like a meme, I'm just wondering, like, why was I so willing and why was it so easy for me to believe this story, this Russian sleep experiment story? Because I don't, I didn't remember all the details of, as you have just described them. Mm-hmm. But I was also in college when I first read this story, the fact that it's Soviet researchers. How do we never talk about this? We went to college I, together. <laughs> I believe that we actually read those creepypastas together. Oh, really? Yeah, but I don't think that we ever analyzed them together. No, we did not. I think we just read them and were like, oh my God. (laughs) Well, you know, for me, the fact that, you know, in the story, Soviet researchers, first of all. (laughs) Right. And second of all, this was around the time that I was really reading about and had this morbid fascination with Joseph Mengele. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, my grandfather spent 12 years in a Russian prison, and I heard stories from my uncle also, sir, was in a Russian, in a Soviet prison. And mm-hmm. it, it was really easy for me to believe that this possibly could have happened. Now, not in those details as you read them today, but I think my memory for sure forged some kind of false 
false idea, this kind of like fake knowledge that I had in my brain that it's totally comprehensible to me that Soviet researchers would have done something like this and Mm -hmm. totally believable to me that it would cause some sort of dementia, which actually sleep deprivation does cause. And it Um, causes psychosis. It causes psychosis. I think that the record holder for the longest stretch of no sleep, it was 11 days, Randy Gardner. I came across this information. I came across a video actually about Randy Gardner like three Mm -hmm. ago before we even conceived of this podcast. It was just like one of those infotainment sort of things. Um, They talked about Randy. Mm-hmm. But there is a genetic disorder that's very, very rare called fatal familial insomnia mm-hmm. that causes people to to not sleep. It's it affects it affects the prions in their in their brain and the, the prions misfold and they lose their normal functionality. And so what happens is like this debilitating insomnia. And so mm-hmm. a, a person with FFI, they go on days without rest. They develop weird like symptoms like pinpoint pupils drenching sweats and then they slip into often like after weeks of no sleep slip into this like pre-sleep twilight they appear to be sleepwalking their body's like jerky they can't control their movements like you know when you're falling asleep and you have that like you have the sense of like dropping and like yeah that's that's kind of how they behave they lose weight and then eventually dementia follows and death Um, Which is terrifying enough and and enough to like build a scary urban legend off of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, years and years until you brought this up to me, knowing what our podcast is going to be about. Mm -hmm. And when you asked me about it, it was like, oh, my God, yes, I totally believe that these Russian sleep experiments were real. I would have gone on believing them quietly in the back of my brain. (laughs) Never, never really. I think maybe unless one day I was like, let me Google this and then found out that it's a creepypasta. Right. Um, But otherwise, I would have gone on just tacitly and quietly believing that it was that was real. And you may have never even thought to uh, interrogate that belief because I don't think when we were in college, you or I really understood what information literacy was, or at least I didn't. I, I'm not going to put that on you. <laughs> um, but like, you know, things that I learned like earlier in my life, now that I understand, you know, how to interrogate the information that I that I consume you know, I have those skills now, but, you know, things that I learned 10 years ago, it doesn't always occur to me that I need to interrogate that knowledge because it just feels like accepted knowledge in my life now. Yeah, right. There's this idea that our memories of information that we might have heard or learned about one day, I I think that our minds tend to transform them sometimes I've definitely experienced that I think in a way because we were both we were both English majors Mm -hmm. and we were writing research papers we did have a sense of information literacy the sense that we knew that we couldn't cite sources 
from Wikipedia. We knew that we had to go into a database that was available through our college library and find scholarly articles. So we knew how to do scholarly reading, but we had a purpose for that. So, you know, our purpose was if I'm writing a research paper and I'm doing a discussion, I can't go on someone's blog. But but we consume information and need information for so many other purposes. We consume information about our health. We consume information about celebrities. We consume information about just learning about history, current events, or politics, or Mm -hmm. so many other things. So, you know, we didn't have a word for it per se, but we had a semblance. That's fair. And I think for me, that was like my first like foray into information literacy into research especially, but it felt very self-contained. Mm. I was like, I do this for school and I do this because I have to write a paper and I have to have a thesis to prove and that's why I'm doing this research. Yes. Um, so anything that I consumed like in my spare time on the internet, I just, obviously I didn't believe anything, everything that I read on the internet, but I definitely didn't come across the Russian sleep experiment on the creepypasta website and I didn't know what creepypasta was so it just you know it it burned in my mind for a few weeks as a real true thing that happened because I didn't immediately start interrogating the claims even though like and and it's interesting what you said about memory because I think maybe in your case your your memory I mean memory is so uh it really manipulates actual facts. Mm -hmm. Um, Memory is not reliable. And so your memory likely turned some of the more like unbelievable or or salacious details of the Russian sleep experiment story into, you know, after years of of believing it into more believable claims. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. It sanitized the story. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I began thinking of it, you know, less of this terrifying, uh, <laughs> terrifying, poetic, you know, commentary <laughs> on, on, on the, the monster. Yes. On the, the on the monstrous within. nature. Yeah. Into something a little more fathomable. And we've read plenty, like we've read plenty of like historical accounts of like the horrible experiments that happened uh, during the Holocaust. It was, and, and it was the author of this creepypasta, um, you know, they set, they set this experiment in the 1940s when we know those kinds of horrible things were happening. You know, I mean, lampshades made out of human skin, like horrible sterilizations, you know, just all of these, all of these things. So we know that that's happening at this time. So that was just very smart of the author of this creepypasta um, to set it in, in that era. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, and, and, and rereading, rereading it, rereading it for this podcast. I, I hadn't read it um, since we'd read it in college, but you know, it's one of those horrible things that sticks in your brain. And so I reread it to prepare for today. And it's, it, it is 10 times more horrifying than I remember it being. <laughs> You're right. I mean, the idea that it's set in the 1940s, I mean, God, the depths of human depravity and evilness sometimes is shocking. And, mm-hmm. and, and thinking about like the whole Soviet doctors, I think there's definitely, um, and me, I'm, I'm Russian. So I'm very hyper aware of how Russian people are perceived in Western media. 
um, and that's generally as, you know, especially in the context of like communism and socialism, as evil, as soulless, as heartless, as, you know, um, dastardly and certainly capable of doing something like this and um, submitting another human being to a great, uh, a great evil like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's ironic that I believed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have a question for you. Okay. <clears throat> Actually, less of a question, more of a statement, a story. Okay. On December 14th, 2014, the official Twitter of NASA tweeted out the following. Mm -hmm. January 4th, 9.47 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, the long-awaited planetary alignment will cause a gravitational fluctuation that will leave you weightless for a short period of time. Hashtag be ready. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh -huh. this is something called zero G day. Did you know about this? No, I've never heard about this. Okay. I'm not a, I'm not a Twitter person. So I, neither am I, neither I am know. I. I wasn't on Twitter until like last year. Oh, I know. I think I made a Twitter in college and then never used it. And I, so I started using it last year and I hate it. I, I hate it too. And I'm not on Twitter. So we are morally, <laughs> we are morally better than everyone who uses Twitter. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely not. There's some great no, no, stuff no. on Twitter. I, I just, I, I, I haven't gotten into it. But yes, according to British astronomer Patrick Moore at exactly 9:47 Pacific Standard Time on January 4th, Pluto will pass directly behind Jupiter in relation to Earth, and this rare alignment means that uh, the combined gravitational force of the two planets will exert a stronger tidal pull and it's, it'll temporarily counteract the Earth's own gravity by making people virtually weightless. And it's called the Jovian Plutonial Gravitational Effect. Um, okay. Moore told scientists that they could experience this phenomenon by jumping in the air at the precise moment the alignment occurred. And if mm -hmm. they do so, he promised, they would experience a strange floating sensation. Astronomers have long been aware that there would be an alignment of the planets on the state when Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto would be on the same side of the sun with an arc of 95 degrees wide. And by now, they're guaranteeing that this occurrence is going to cause this gravitational effect. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're going to be able to float around your house, but basically, if you jump up in the air, at, mm -hmm. at, at that time, um, you'll be able to sort of float. Like it'll take you a little bit longer to land. It'll be like this kind of like, as if you're like bouncing on the moon, you know? Right. So mark this date, basically. I mean, you're six years too late, but mark this date. <laughs> okay. So this is called zero G day and it caused, oh, a reaction, like a huge reaction. So, and you, well, you said this, you said this was on NASA's official Twitter, right? Well, yes, but I'm not reading this from Twitter. I'm reading an article from the dailybuzzlive.com. Oh, I see. Yes. That has a screenshot of the official NASA Twitter. Mm -hmm. So, and, and there's a check mark. <clears throat> I do believe now that I'm looking um, closely, I do believe that when I'm looking at like the screenshot of the tweet, 
that where it says NASA with the check mark, I see a little bit of a discoloration, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean anything, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just probably an old tweet. Okay. <clears throat> so <laughs> I did, I, it, gosh, how old was I? It must have been 20, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure we were still in college, and I think I was just home um, for winter break. Mm -hmm. I was um, scrolling through Tumblr, and someone shared, like, kept sharing this information where it was saying, it wasn't saying at 9.47 at our, it, it was saying at 3 a.m. Um, that the plants are going to be aligned. Oh my gosh, they linked to this blog. I was super excited. I set the timer for like 2.58 so that I could wake up and then jump. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did. I I stayed up and then I, you know, heard the timer. I went downstairs so that I didn't jump on top and wake everybody up. I went downstairs right. and I jumped up and oh my God. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing happened. So that was that. And then I totally forgot about it. <laughs> um, I think that I was so ashamed. So ashamed. I think that I was so ashamed that I repressed this memory and it was just like, mm -hmm. oh no, we cannot talk about this. <laughs> um, you certainly never told me about it. It. I mean, this is 2014. I don't we know. Are we are adults. We are 18 years like, old. We're more than 18, honey. We are graduating college. In oh, no, you're right. We're 22. We are 22 years old. We are almost college graduates. So, <clears throat> yes. Uh, <laughs> here are some tweets from January 3rd from Galloway Astro Center. And this is a screenshot that I took. But it says, all those who believe in zero-G day may, may discover the gravity of Earth is stronger than the other faraway planets. Don't break a leg. But then, moving forward, I don't care if zero-G day is a hoax. I'm doing it anyway. Jumping for joy at 9.47 a.m. <laughs> Join me. <clears throat> Just found out hashtag zero-G day is a hoax, and now I'm disappointed slash a little pissed. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for zero G day. The planets are going to align in such a way that you'll be able to float for five minutes. How neat is that? And this was on March 28th, 2014. So mm -hmm. and this is a, this is a meme, a pasta. It's, you know, um, mm -hmm. absolutely nothing apart from an overwhelming feeling of foolishness and betrayal. Hashtag <laughs> day. I really identified myself with that one. Oh, yes. So Snopes obviously debunks this. The Snopes article is about, uh, yeah, January says that unusual planetary alignment on January 4th, 2015 does not make anyone weightless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yes. So here's an example collected from the internet. Someone said, I read an article on Facebook that said a planetary alignment on January 4th, 2015 will cause everyone on Earth to experience a slight weightlessness. Um, obviously this is false. It was a classic April's Fool's Day prank 
which mm -hmm. was written in 1976 when British astronomer Patrick Moore informed a radio audience that the movement of two planets would result in an upward gravitational pull, which would make people on Earth lighter at precisely 9.47 a.m. that day. So he invited his audience to jump in the air and experience a strange floating sensation. And within minutes, of dozens of listeners had reportedly phoned in to say the experiment had worked. So, yes, uh, even though Patrick Moore passed away in December 2012, mm -hmm. uh, this prank, whatever, keeps being recycled. Um, and the dates just have been changing and, you know. Right. And, and, and. NASA never tweeted this, correct? No. Let okay. me actually. It was just actually, it was just a doctored photo in the article. Oh my gosh, read. it is so obviously fake. Yeah. So, unless let me let me actually look this up. I'm gonna look this up. NASA Twitter NASA zero G day. Because maybe that year, all the people working at NASA were just really into practical jokes. Maybe. <laughs> I don't. Maybe, I, hear, I hear the disappointment in your sigh, maybe <laughs> Caitlin, but it's highly unlikely. <laughs> They're scientists. They don't like humor. <laughs> they don't like humor. Oh no, I don't believe that they ever even tweeted that. Yeah, I mean, this article from what was what did they say? Buzz Live. Uh, <laughs> Buzz Daily da Mail Live. Yeah, dailybuzzlive.com. No author, no date of when this article is written, telling me that sharing is caring and asking me to share this article full of ads is, yeah. So <laughs> let me ask you the second question that I've ever asked you. Please. So both of us have had have had these experiences, um, obviously, when we were younger. So what are some ways in both of our cases that we could have figured out from the get go that these were hoaxes? That's a really great question. So I, and I, you know, I think the answer is different depending on, you know, what the hoax is. Yeah. I read I read this on Tumblr and I am pretty sure that my instinct was I I have this memory and again, you know, this was years ago, but I believe that I went and I googled like, oh my gosh, can gravity change? And obviously more articles, more more fake articles popped up that were like, mm -hmm. "Oh, yay, you know, uh, zero G day gravity." And yeah, I I think the answer to your question depends on the nature of the question. So, what could I have done? I could have participated in something like in information searching or in what's the word parallel information searching. So instead of mm -hmm. searching, you know, zero G day uh, or like is gravity gonna, is there gonna be less gravity on this day? Which would obviously the SEO is gonna pick up on zero G day on the hoax, right? So it's gonna bring up the most relevant results because that's what the algorithm does on Google. Which are all of those fake articles and which then are, the abundance of those fake articles make you believe that, oh yes, this must be true. Exactly. This is me fact checking. This is me not. fact checking, but it's not. So what could I have done? I could have done a parallel search. So I could have searched, can gravity on earth ever change? Or, you know, planetary alignment, just searching that or, actually checking out NASA's Twitter. Did they tweet this? So I have a question about this. What did you call it? Parallel? A parallel searching. 
parallel searching. So when I was trying to figure out if the Russian sleep experiment was really true, when I Googled, like, how long can a person live without sleep, is that parallel searching? Researching? Yes. Yes. Okay. Cool. Now, I don't think that this is an official phrase. Parallel searching, I think that it's it's also a psychological phrase. I'm not sure. Mm. So don't don't quote me on this, but this is something I call parallel searching or parallel information seeking. Uh, when you are, if you had just typed in Russian sleep experiment, what would have come up? Yeah, more more of the same. Yeah, more of the same would come up, but asking it in a different way, rephrasing your question. What what did you use to search? Did you use Google search? I uh, probably. Okay. I can't, I can't remember, but like, I mean, Google, Google or Yahoo. I think Google has been my primary search engine for a while, which might also be a problem. Where do you go to look for your information? Where do most of us go? We go to Google. We don't um, usually, we don't usually hop in the car and go down to our local library and, and sift through books. And if you did go to your local library and you talked to your local librarian and they asked a question about it, do you know the first thing that your librarian would do? I don't. They would Google it. Really? Yeah. We know how to Google. Right. You know it, the, the signposts to look out for. I know where to go. I know how to do Boolean searches. And we also know what to look for. So mm -hmm. it, if you were to come to me and ask me a question about parallel searching, but you were talking about what we're talking about right now and not computer learning, I would actually proceed to ask you more questions. You know, it, I can search a phrase. I can search a phrase and just show you what comes up. Mm -hmm. If you just tell me, hey, what's, can you tell me more about parallel searching? Mm -hmm. But I would conduct something called a reference interview with you to mm -hmm. get to the point, to get to the gist. And if you were to say, well, actually, what I want to know is how does human information learning happen? How, how do we search for things and like the psychology behind that? Well, then mm -hmm. I could conduct a better search for you just on Google. Obviously, mm -hmm. then I would go into maybe a database to look for, mm -hmm. for more information, find a book for you. But my first step the instinct in like 90, I would say 95% of my reference interactions with patrons is a Google search. Okay. And that's something that our listeners can do for themselves too. They don't need a librarian to do a Google search. Um, it's well, just- Hey, 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 I need to have <laughs> um, Please come to the library and have us do your Google searches for you. But you're equipped with the knowledge that they don't have about how to effectively go through that search. I, I'm totally kidding. Absolutely. I think that every single person who just is doing any sort of Google searching for themselves can be equipped with tips and tricks on how to conduct better information searches in general, not just Google, but anywhere. Yeah. One of the, one of the tips, I think, is something we just talked about, which is knowing which sources in general um, that come up on a Google search are more trustworthy. So we're talking about dot, dot .edu, and I think when I was in college, it was taught to me .edu and .gov are more um, uh, reliable than a .com or a .net. Yes, what I think is more relevant is doing something like a crap test. Mm -hmm. um, so what you look for, what do you look for? Um, you know, see if the see if the author is even mentioned. Look right. up the author separately. Mm -hmm. um, is the is there a date 
for this piece of information? Is the post or the paper or the article dated? Is the news article dated? Mm -hmm. um, is it actually relevant? Is it talking about what you are looking for? Is it relevant to your search? And is it reliable information? I think a lot of people actually have those skills, but they don't have the, the definition. Like one of the things that I was going to say that I could have done for when I first read the Russian sleep experiment, the first thing that I should have done is I should have scrolled to the bottom and seen if there were any reference links. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't do that. And I don't even think at that time I really thought that I needed to do that. Even though, as we said, I we were learning how to be good researchers, um, which is not a slight on my college professors. <laughs> I think it's just like a lack of being able to apply the skills I was learning in school to, you know, my personal online life. But that's that looking for a source is the first thing that I should have done. Yeah. Yeah. Was there an author or a date? So the author, um, there was no date, I don't believe, when I read it. Uh, the author, it was a screen name. It wasn't a name name. So it was, it was like orange something. But it wasn't like a person's name that I could Google. And I think one of the reasons, you know, when we were in college and we were learning to research, we were taught not to use Wikipedia, which I have actually, I, I have changed my mind about that. Mm -hmm because there is a great way to use Wikipedia and the great way to use Wikipedia is to scroll down and look at the references. So if you come across a Wikipedia page that has no references, like no, just no additional information, of course you can't trust that. But um, one of the other things that if we have time, I was going to talk about is the Voynich manuscript. And when you go to the Wikipedia page on the Voynich manuscript, let me pull it up so that I'm not so that I'm not lying to you. There are 131 citations under references for 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 this Wikipedia page. There's a bibliography uh, which has at least 20, if not more, actual texts. Uh, some of them are books, and some of them are scholarly articles. And then there are at least 10 further reading articles at maybe less reputable places so like the so skeptics magazine the new york review of books and then there are there's more external links uh analyst websites and then a list of news and documentaries so there is so much information on on wikipedia so it's just it's just about like knowing how to use it I, the first time i ever heard from an educator be like stay away from Wikipedia was in high school and again mm. you know I think here's and I'm going to make a comment and this is my opinion I, I think that the problem with part of I'm not going to say the problem with our society but part of the problem with the way that we are educated mm. you, we're educated in the context of like human capital right our education is there to create better workers so that we're yeah. more efficient um, and so we can make money so and we can make and money spend it. and blah, 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 blah. Right. And we can spend it and, and just participate in this like machine. Um, but what happens is that we are like, I feel like we're nuance deprived. Yes. You know, we memorize formulas and we memorize things that we are then tested on that we then forget most likely. Mm -hmm. But I think what, how our education fails us is 
we don't start early enough with being critical thinkers. Mm-hmm. I am. I just want to say I was an avid in high school. And avid is advanced placement, right? Avid is not advanced placement. Oh, um, yeah. So, <laughs> avid is a program in schools, and it's called well, it's called advancement via ad- individual determination, and. Basically, it takes previously underachieving students, primarily from low-income and ethnic or linguistic minority backgrounds, and it puts them in the same college preparation academic program as high-achieving students. I don't even remember how I got recommended for this course, but I am so grateful for it because it's the only reason I got into college. And I had a fantastic teacher. We still keep in touch, Miss Wellner. And I'm so grateful to her because the biggest thing that she did for us, for our class, is she would do these things called Socratic um, seminars or Socratic circles. And what we would right. do, but we would put our desks in a circle. She would give us a topic, and we would talk about it. We would read about it. We would debate it. And she really, really—I mean, she like taught me about Bloom's taxonomy. So it was created in 1956 by Benjamin Bloom with collaborators Max Engelhart, uh, Edward First, Walter Hill, and David Crathwall. And they published this as a like framework for categorizing individual goals. And this is specifically about how we participate in the knowledge process. At the bottom of the pyramid, you remember. So this is when you're able to recall facts and basic concepts. You can define something, you can duplicate it, you can list it, you can memorize, you can repeat it. Mm-hmm. And often, I feel like in education and just thinking back on my own education, that is where we left it. Yeah, that's we, where we stopped. That's where we stopped. If you passed your, if you passed your test, great, you know. And for me, to this day, I think that model has left me with an inability to remember facts. Mm. Oh, yeah. I have trouble remembering facts and names and dates. I have really poor retention skills. And I Mm -hmm. think uh, that is one of the reasons why. Do you think that if you were able to interact with it on increasingly higher levels, so the next is to understand it. And when you understand it you're able to explain these ideas or concepts to someone. You're able to discuss it like we are yes. right now. Moving up, you apply. So you use this information in new situations. You say you use a formula that you can explain, but then you can interpret it in a different setting or you can execute an idea in your real life. And I had trouble with that in college when I first read The Russian Sleep Experiment. I had trouble taking those things that I was learning in our English classes about how to research and applying it to my personal life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I just talked to you about buying into the zero G day hoax and believing this Russian sleep experiment for years until recently, which is a failure on my part. All I was able to do is recall false facts and then I left it at that. I didn't engage with it. Right. So after apply, it's analyze. Analysis occurs when you can draw connections between ideas. So when you have context surrounding a specific piece of information. And then further on, it's evaluate when you Mm -hmm. can justify a standard decision. I'm just thinking about it in terms of our current political climate, where so many of us have these ideas and we have these stances 
that we don't really we don't really engage with them through this Bloom's taxonomy, right? And to me, that means doing your research, just right. doing your research. And I I think that people bypass it to this evaluate level where they just argue, defend, judge, support, critique. Without oh yes. Having this base without having this support, without going through this process of critical thinking and engaging critically with information. Which leads to very contentious arguments on Facebook that will forever be memorialized. Yes. No matter how much you learn or grow as a person, you will always have that reminder of the time you were an idiot and an asshole on the internet. <laughs> can I just can I tell you something about Facebook real quick? Yes, you can. As a, because there is one more element to Bloom's taxonomy. But real quick about what Facebook memorializes, Facebook saves the information that you just type in to the box without you clicking post. If you just type something in, and even if you don't post it, guess who has that information? That's terrifying. Right? That's terrifying. That is terrifying. That is terrifying. Um, but then uh, the top of the pyramid is create, or um, sometimes it's written as synthesize. When mm -hmm. what you do is you take you take the information you have that you've evaluated, and you create something new. You synthesize it. You create a new idea. You develop something from it. You author a paper. So yeah, that's Bloom's taxonomy. Um, and so that was what uh, Ms. Wellner in my AVID class taught me how to do, which Again, I think I need a refresher course. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's that seems like a thing to me is like we need to be constantly reminding ourselves because it's so easy to forget, especially, you know, when you're out of school and you're working and you're tired all the time and you just want to relax and you don't it's it's not your job necessarily um to think critically about everything that you see because you're not a researcher so we need this constant reminder to sharpen our own skills our our own comprehension skills there's a sense of complacency that happens mm -hmm. um where we think and we believe that we have this sense of like righteousness or under certain understanding that other people don't have, that we become complacent. Because we have not, diplomas and degrees. Right, right. And it's elitist, right? It's this elitist sense of like, well, I know, I, I, yeah. I know, I know how to do this, but it has to be intentional and you have to be open-minded and you have to consider the source. There's a thing called critical information literacy. Mm -hmm. And critical information literacy is also acknowledging biases. It's acknowledging whose work are we privileging, whose voices are we privileging. It's being, it's approaching information. It's approaching learning with humility. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I really uh, vibe with. Just the concept, but it's something that I haven't yet put into practice. It's so easy for me to hear someone say something and I, I have a friend who believes in COVID conspiracies and yes. believes in political conspiracies and we all know someone who does we all know someone who does and well what happens is it, it becomes really difficult to interact sometimes and what happens is that I stop listening to her yeah 
I stop listening to my friend and I approach a lot of what she says. Um, you know, she'll ask me a question like, oh my gosh, did you hear that this happened? And because it's like, it feels wrong to me because I'm like, well, ooh, this feels off to me. I just don't follow up. Right. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I don't approach, I don't approach those conversations with humility because my instinct is just to immediately not listen, not to research, to just immediately discount anything that she says. And by doing that, I then don't know how to communicate with her. I don't mm -hmm. know how, when the time comes, if the opportunity presents itself to maybe offer her a different perspective because I haven't even engaged with her perspective. Exactly. Thank you yeah. so much for joining me, Caitlin. You're more than welcome. Thank I you had a blast. For asking me questions for the first time in your the life. The first time in our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also for informing me about the fact that Russian sleep experiments are fake. <laughs> well, that one is. I'm sure there's some legitimate <laughs> Russian sleep experiments. I'm, I'm sure, but that creepy pasta is just so specific. And terrifying. And terrifying, yeah. <laughs>